past summer, I had an opportunity to deepen my mindfulness practice by integrating it more fully with a yoga practice. And I think it was mid-June when I went to a day-long retreat called Restorative Yoga. I don't know any of you have done restorative yoga, but it is grounded in holding poses for a very long time, stretching poses for a very, very long time. And I'm not talking about, let me see if I can get this right, you know, I'm not talking about like warrior one, you know, your butt's out and you're held up and then these start to, you know, these start to burn here. And then the the yoga teacher says, bring yourself over to the side like this and hold the elbow down, the elbow up. And then you start to shake and you start to sweat. And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. It really is. That's not restorative yoga. Restorative yoga is, in a way, kind of like a a Taoist phrase. Wei Wu Wei. It means doing without doing. Holding these long poses against long pillows that hold and cradle the body. Or holding the legs up against the wall for sometimes 10, 15 minutes at a time. I walked out of there after about three hours of this, and I felt as if something had changed. I looked at the world and at myself with the deep spirit of kindness, receptivity, friendliness, openness. But here's the thing. It was not Ken Point Two. It was not a better me. A new improved version of me. Rather, I felt as if something had been taken away. Something removed. And some deepest part of me able to emerge. Just simply allowed to be. I felt like this, if you've ever seen this. I felt restored to my factory settings. (laughs) I felt as if gunk, for lack of a better word, was just released. Now, this is an important theological point in our tradition. Our tradition does not believe that we, our, ourselves, are inherently depraved or sinful. I was just talking to uh, new members, some folks are going to join at 11 o'clock today, and they want to do a dedication for their child. And they grew up in a Catholic tradition. A tradition in which the baptism is to specifically wash the child free, clean the child from original sin. Our version of a dedication is a blessing, not a washing free from original sin. And yet at the same time, we know, even in our tradition, that human brokenness is real. That there is tremendous difficulty in this life. And that hearts and bodies break and that sometimes we are not kind to each other at all sometimes we're just downright cruel to one another i'd say without this tension between the fact that we are not at heart inherently depraved and also at the same time we experience profound and painful disconnection this whole message series wouldn't be in the first place this is at the heart of what this book daring greatly by Brene brown is all about She is, if you don't know this already, a shame researcher. She researches what it is like when we feel profound disconnection from our own hearts and other people's hearts. She says this, we are psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually hardwired for connection, love, and belonging. Now, connection, love, and belonging, 
These are why we are here. And this is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. The experience of shame for many of us is about what makes us feel not worthy of connection, belonging, and love. Which I believe, and our tradition preaches, is who we really are in our hearts. Now, how to cultivate this and how to live that, that's the challenge. It's one of the reasons I have a mindfulness practice about learning to open up space with my experience, whatever is going on, and before seeking to change anything, just first seeking to know what is here. Now, mindfulness, as some of you might know, is really hot. Mindfulness is kind of the thing right now. I mean, just the other day, I was in a Barnes and Nobles, and I was at, uh, you know, the magazine rack, and right in the front of the magazine rack was Mindful Magazine. And if you didn't look at the title, Mindful Magazine, I would have thought it was Better Homes and Gardens. Or any of the variety of lifestyle magazines that were being on display. The person on the, the, the front, he was just <laughs> the image of success. And by the way, mindfulness is not opposed to success. It's, it's just that mindfulness, I think, has gotten a little bit too much notice for its own good. That it overpromises certain things and, in fact, may be disconnected from the deeper spiritual path to which it really belongs. And so I truly was uh, nodding my head in agreement when I read these words from the Buddhist Peace Fellowship online this past week that someone sent me. It's someone with a dedicated mindfulness practice who actually just came back from a six month retreat, a six month mindfulness retreat. Someday, I swear, that'll be me. I hope. And she said, part of me longs for the day when a study proves once and for all that mindfulness is entirely useless for anything besides the development of wisdom and kindness. Mindfulness is entirely useless for the development of anything besides the development of wisdom and kindness. About two years ago, I had a lesson in this which was not a lesson that I wanted and not a lesson that I would have chosen. Two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I was out to dinner with my wife and something happened to me that had not happened to me at least for several years before. I had an anxiety attack, a full-on, full-blown panic attack. Now, panic attacks are familiar to me. I spent the better part of my early 20s, either fearing or having panic attacks. It was unpleasant. It's one of the things that drew me to mindfulness in the first place, not to, as a cure-all, but to learn to exist with someone who struggles with anxiety in a kinder and wiser way. So my wife and I were out to dinner, and all of a sudden, I felt it. It's like a little switch went on in the deepest recesses of my brain. I didn't know where the off switch was. And I felt the tightening start in my chest. And the tortilla chip that I was chewing on suddenly tasted acidic. And I felt my vision start to close in a little bit. I'm sorry if this is triggering anything for you. Just remember to breathe, please. This is not your story. This is my story. I excused myself. I went to the bathroom, tried to breathe a little bit. Ah, oh, okay, a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of mindfulness. 
I can make it through. I can make it through. You've experienced this before. Went back to the table and my heartbeat shot up to about 175 beats per minute. And I started to sweat. And then the thoughts about maybe this is it. Maybe I'll die in my mid-40s just like my mother died in her mid-40s will happen. And I told my wife, who could not have been more kind to me, I'm not going to make it through this meal. We need to go. She settled up the bill. I spent the next 10 minutes pacing in front of the restaurant, checking my pulse constantly, seeing this is going to be it. This is going to be it. This is the end. She drove me to the parking lot of a hospital and said, you can go in if you want to, or we can just sit here. We just sat there. Meanwhile, I was fighting all these thoughts of, God damn it, you're a mindfulness teacher. This shouldn't be happening to you. (laughs) And then I started judging those thoughts, which, by the way, is a great way to increase the panic that you're already experiencing. (laughs) And eventually it was happening. I just gave in. About an hour later, we were at home and the panic had subsided. And I felt totally wrung out, totally like a squeezed out sponge. And a friend of mine recognized their number. It was a number that had not popped up on my screen on my phone for a very long time. Several years had been since we talked. I saw that they were calling. And I thought, you know what, I just kind of want to go to bed. (laughs) Kind of want to shut out the world. But I picked up. Because last time we had talked, I knew that this friend of mine was struggling. And I could barely make out the voice on the other end of the line. It was so strangled by grief and sadness and loss. My friend had shared with me something that wasn't entirely new to me, but the full detail was this. That because of their job and international travel for years, they had seen tremendous violence and trauma drawn into some of the most dangerous places in the world, this person had in fact been traumatized. And that all of the chickens that they had been pushing off for years were coming home to roost. Coming home to roost in the form of PTSD and addiction. And he was reaching out to me because he knew that I was in recovery and I wanted to be reachable. We talked for four hours that night. I'm glad I picked up the phone. And I'm not just glad I picked up the phone because of my friend. I'm glad I picked up the phone after that anxiety attack. Because although I did not ask for it, that anxiety attack made me the exact person that my friend needed me to be. Wiser about this, simply. We're all vulnerable, we're all capable of being wounded. I was deeply aware of this within myself after that anxiety attack. And that out of that wisdom, basic kindness emerged. I was there for him, fully, as long as he needed me to be. I would not have asked for that anxiety attack, but it made me more able to be wise and kind. I'd like to believe I was effective at helping him, sharing my experience, strength, and hope. But I think mostly he just needed someone to listen. He needed someone to help him restore his factory settings in the midst of all the gunk 
and all the trouble that had accumulated in his life. The teacher Ramdas would have perhaps called what I experienced the anxiety attack followed by wisdom and kindness, fierce grace. Fierce grace, which doesn't so much wonder about the why of how it came about to be, but instead focuses on this. Fierce grace, which reveals the truth of how limitless our belonging and love are, both in great bliss, and by the way, that's what that restorative yoga was, great Amazing bliss and great pain, our own or someone else's. This has been a week for those of us in Chester County that perhaps we've opened just a bit more to the great pain of our world. You see here these two faces. And I invite you to just be kind with yourself with whatever's arising. I read something like, before these two deaths this past week, there had not been a a murder in Chester County for about a year. This is one of the safer places to live. And still. And yet. Earlier this week, outside of a why that I know some of you go to, some of you said that, Jacinda Miller killed in cold blood by an estranged former boyfriend, another gun death. And that would have been enough sorrow and enough sadness and enough pain. But then Scotty McMillan. I'm not going to get into the motives of those who took these lives. And I don't even want to get too much into how Scotty McMillan died because It boggles the mind that there is such evil. All I will say this about those who took these two lives, both as precious as could be, is that they missed the most essential thing, which is that we all belong to and with each other, and none of us owns anyone else. That is, at some level, What the man who killed Jacinda Miller must have thought. And that the parents of Scotty McMillan must have thought. That somehow they owned them. And they were their objects to do what they would have. Some lesson was missed. Don't know how. And so for those of us here today. What lessons do we take? I think we all can acknowledge that first lesson. We all do belong to and with each other, and none of us is owned by anyone else. That there have to be limits about what we think we can do in this life. But the other part is this. It's not just the you can't, or they ought not have, or look what they did and the pain and the suffering that they brought. The other part is the permission. The other part is the love, the love that we all feel. I see it on some of your faces. Just notice how spontaneous that grief, that loss for these people that you did not know is. We are hardwired for connection, belonging, and love. 
It is who we are. Why else would we grieve and feel sad over people we do not know? Maybe on some deep level, we do know them. Notice how spontaneously grief and love and loss arise for you. Notice also, too, that it is deeper than anger. I have seen some expressions on social media that make my blood run cold. Rage. And I'm not saying rage is an inadequate feeling to feel in the wake of particularly what was done to Scotty McMillan, the intentional torture of a child. What I'm saying is, is that there has to be something deeper than anger. Scratch the surface of anger and what makes us angry. Scratch the surface of sorrow and what makes us sorrowful. And we will find again there love. The connection that cannot be broken. This is a follow-up to what I was talking about last week. When we honor and live and recognize those connections that are already there, the grief for people we do not even know but still care about, this is what it means to follow our skin into this life. To have skin in the game, in trusting and in caring and in reaching out to those we know who are in trouble now. Not just about wanting retribution, and we do and I do for those who took these lives, but to trust that deeper voice of restoration. How can we be and how can we reach out to those who are suffering now? This past year, we did a 5K. We did it to benefit Chester County Futures. And at the end of the day, one of the quietest kids, she wasn't even here with a mentor because I think she was graduating from the program. I've told some of you this. She came up to me in the quietest possible way, her voice barely audible. She leaned in and she said, thank you all for caring. No act of love and belonging and kindness is ever wasted. Let us trust that our sadness and our loss, nothing can take away what happened to Scotty and Jacinda. But also, let's not put that love and that loss and that urge to belong to bed. Let's trust it and follow it and learn how to do that better for ourselves. It's what I've been writing in that little book I have back there and writing in the inscription for everyone who's bought it. May you grow in the likeness of love that you already are. May we grow into the likeness of love that we already are. I believe that all new learning, however creative it is, however adaptive it is, is always, in fact, a remembering. All learning is a remembering of what we already know. A reset to our factory settings. I think of this from one of the great minds in America. Neil deGrasse Tyson. We are all connected to each other biologically, to the earth chemically, to the rest of the universe atomically. We are not figuratively, but literally stardust. To follow that wisdom, and this is, by the way, someone who promotes learning <laughs> and learning all kinds of new ways to get in touch with that. But that learning is just remembering, isn't it? 
It's just remembering what is already here and who we already are. And it brings to mind a quote that I used a couple weeks ago from the Hindu teacher Sri Nisargadatta. Wisdom is knowing I am nothing. Just stardust, right? Love is knowing I am everything. Stardust. <laughs> Literally, we are stardust. Wisdom is knowing I am nothing. Love is knowing I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. All our lives flow. We open up to this truth and allow it to wake us up. How could we not but live in awe? Awe for this life. And even perhaps find and know the awe that is in the awful. By the way, that's what that word means, awful. Full of awe. Knowing the awe that is in the awful is not being grateful for the awful. There is nothing to be grateful for in the death of Jacinda Miller and Scotty McMillan. Anyone who has a silver lining theology is missing the points of the suffering. Knowing the awe and the awful is simply this. How easily these hearts can break because of how tenderly all of our hearts are connected. It is about wisdom and kindness, being simultaneously nothing and everything. I think in the spiritual life, anything else beyond wisdom and kindness is just commentary. Today, in loss and in love, and knowing we never get one without the other, may we all grow into the likeness of love that we already are and that I already am and that you already are. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O source divine of these tender, fragile hearts, may we recognize the basic vulnerability of what it means to be alive. Because of this, may we raise our hearts even higher in that noble quest for justice and compassion and love. That from this source we come as our universalist tradition preaches to us and asks us to inscribe upon our hearts. It is the nature of love already. May each step, each day, each walk through life be a chance to check in. Are we inscribing this deeper love, connection, belonging on our hearts? Are we recognizing the shame, the hurt, the misunderstanding that separate us from this truth? And instead of bringing more judgment, more anger to what separates us already, may we be those who stand in the gulf of repairing, of restoring, of remembering who we are and who we are called to become. Amen.